Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Revelation chapter 21 This is where we are today, and this chapter is kind of the pinnacle of the entire book. What happens in this chapter connects through lines, it connects dots that have been established all throughout the entire book. Everything we've been talking about is pointing to the things that are going to transpire in Revelation 21 today, and that's why it's so exciting and such a good book because it's all connected. These chapters don't stand on their own. It is prophecy, it is poetry, it is symbolism, but it is truth. And so what we're told in 21 is going to happen and it's connected to all of the things that happened earlier in the book. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about in Revelation 2.7, 2.11, 2.17, 3.5, 3.12, All of the early promises to the suffering churches in chapters one, two, and three are fulfilled in 21. Just conquer, overcome. Don't let Babylon get on the inside of you. Don't buy what she's selling. If you can overcome, if you can conquer, if you can sustain and be fulfilled to the end, if you can believe in Christ and keep on believing, there's a promise for you. What's the promise? The promise is what we see in 21. The fulfillment that eternity will be fulfilled with you being with your God and your God being with you. And not in some fluffy spiritual popping around as a little angel on a cloud kind of a deal. No, in a resurrected body in a new heaven and a new earth. This is a good chapter. Can you tell I'm a little excited about it? Not only one through three, but also the hymns of four and five are fully realized in this. Who is the one who is, who is unlike any other? Who's the one who has the power to fulfill the promises? Who is the one who said, this is how it's going to be? And then sure enough, that's how it was. It's Jesus. And we see him fulfilling all his promises in four and five. We see the dragon being forever defeated and the woman who was, had a, a crown of stars on her head is now prepared as a bride and is now married to the lamb. The bride of Christ has been fully revealed and she is gorgeous. And she is fit for the resurrected king. She's not some second half, like she's she's not some girl he just found on the street and we're gonna dress her up and make her look pretty. No, she is holy and righteous and wearing those white robes that were given to her and she kept them white. We see that fulfilled in 21. We also see the cleansing judgments of six through 16 giving way to this new heaven and a new earth. So what do we see in this book? We see 21 being the ultimate fulfillment of everything that's come before. The trials and the tribulations that have already begun since the moment Christ rose from the dead. These fulfillments 
of seals being broken throughout time, these trumpet judgments being declared over the earth. Look, time is running out. You need to trust in the lamb and stop following the dragon. You need to be counted among the city of God and not the cities of this world. Don't count yourself with the harlot of this age. Find yourself counted among the bride of Christ. You've got these contrasting elements all throughout the book and then all of a sudden this final trumpet blows and it's all over because the king is back. The sky splits, everyone sees the temple. And those who have said, I don't want any part of that king, I wanna be my own king, I wanna make my own way and do my own thing. Wrath is poured out on them, judgment happens. And then there's this period where Christ rules over the earth and things are made right the way it should have been all along. At the very end, there's this final rebellion and Christ squashes it, and then we enter into this new period of eternity. This time that's not bound by time anymore, this period that's coming in the future here on earth, we would call it eternity, but John says, man, I don't know any other way to say it, but it's a new heaven and a new earth. And from that point forward, after Christ puts all things to death, there will be no more death. It's a heck of a thing to celebrate during Christmas. It's the kind of thing that I would like to unwrap under a tree. It doesn't matter what you can buy someone, there is no message, there is no present greater than what we're about to read as our inheritance as the people of God. Are you ready for this? Revelation 21, let's get into the book, verse one. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. It's good, it's good. So when John sees in this vision eternity, What does he see? How does he describe this period of eternity that's coming our way, that we're gonna inherit, that we're gonna enter into? How does he describe it? Well, the first thing he says is he sees that it's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, one way to look at this is that it's the old heaven and the old earth burned away, destroyed, and now he's gonna make a new one. Literally, just like in Genesis, he makes a new one except that Greek word new is the same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 when he talks about us being a new creation. 
So the sense is not that we're gonna get a completely new heaven and a completely new earth. The sense is that the heaven and the earth that we know now will be, it will be unrecognizable because what Christ is gonna do when he returns, and he's, he's gonna make it completely new. In the same way that you have been made completely new when he changed you. Okay, so there's still gonna be a North Florida? Yeah, but it won't be North Florida. You won't recognize it. It'll be like it, but not. Just imagine what this area would be like without 90 degree weather and mosquitoes. (laughs) My hope is in this. It's gonna be like it, but it's gonna be new. John sees not a different earth, but he sees this new, renewed earth. He sees an earth that geographically looks very similar to the old earth, but it looks more like Eden, if you gotta describe it. And then he sees a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Now this is an interesting one. He sees a city prepared as a bride for her husband. Now we've seen that language before. There was some other thing that looked like a bride prepared for a husband. And we're gonna get some clues on what verse two is talking about when we get to verse nine. So put a pin just in that and we'll come back to this city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. But the other thing that John sees in eternity is a world where there are no more negative terms. And this is what's fascinating about the way John is describing what he sees. John, in eternity, what do you see, man? He's, he's not, man, I see like sheep, but their but they're, 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 like coats are like made of gold wool. No, he's not saying that. The, the only way he can describe how amazing eternity is going to be is by helping us understand that the things that we hate most about this heaven and earth are no longer there. That's how we're taught from the Bible to think about what eternity, what is your eternal state gonna look like? What is it gonna be like when we fully realize we've been resurrected and we're entering into this new kingdom? What's it gonna be like? Well, I, I, I don't have words for you. All I can tell you is that it's not gonna be like this. And he gets specific, what does he say? He says, there's not gonna be any more tears, there's not gonna be any more death, there's not gonna be any mourning, there's not gonna be any crying, there's not gonna be any more pain because all of the former things have passed away, all things are being made new. Where do I sign? I want that. I want that life. I want to know what it's like to live as a human under the supremacy and the rule of Jesus Christ without that thing that keeps creeping around the corner, temptation, sorrow, sadness, the feeling of losing someone that you love that's close to you, the feeling that you might not get tomorrow, so you gotta make the most of today. See, when you're young, you don't think like that. When you get in the car, you buckle up, like, of course I'm gonna get to where I'm going. But the older you get, you start thinking like, man, I might not have as long as I thought I had. And so you start wrestling with things that you never thought you'd wrestle with before. And you start considering, man, I don't don't know why I've been like that for so long because now at this age, and at this level of maturity, it's not worth it. 
Well, that stuff is good, but think about what is challenging you to think that way. It's the fact that right around the corner is this thing that's, that's peeking at you, that's haunting you, that's saying, hey, you have an expiration date, man. You're not gonna go forever. Oh, then I gotta make the most of today. But what if there wasn't the Grim Reaper? What if there wasn't this anticipation that, well, I, I can't climb that tree because if I fall, I'm gonna break my legs. What if you could just climb the tree? What if you were 93 and if you wanted to climb a tree, you just climb the tree? What's it gonna be like when we all get together to celebrate your one millionth birthday? Like candles, we can't do that anymore. We gotta come up with something else. Do you see what John is saying? He's like, look, if you just endure what you're gonna enter into, your mind doesn't, you, you can't wrap your head around this thing. Because every component of life here on earth has some tie to sin. The moment you wake up in the morning, I feel like I'm behind the clock, I'm late. Or if you get up early, you're ahead of the clock, you walk in the bathroom, you look in the mirror, oh, I don't like what I see. Where is that from? Sin. Your inability to be content with the way that God has created you and shaped you and molded you. No, no, it's gotta be different. I don't like this. What if, there, what if that wasn't there? I don't think we fully understand how much of our identity and our life is really rooted in the fall. What will life be like if there are no repercussions of the fall? John's like, there's not enough books in the world to describe to you what's coming for those who inherit the kingdom of God. But don't let me stop you from thinking about it. Because if you take a moment and just meditate on how mind-blowingly amazing what is promised God's people It'll put a steel in your spine. It'll, it will erupt in your heart joy and worship that previously was absent. So while you can't wrap your head fully around this, John says, try. Try to think about a world where there's no more death and no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain. Because what he's doing, where we're headed, all things are made new. Let's get into verse five. It says, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. It's interesting. He doesn't say, behold, I will make all things new. He says, behold, which is a word that says, stop what you're doing and give me your full attention. Behold, I am, present tense, making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Not only am I doing it, I want you to write it down so that everybody knows that I'm doing it right now. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son.
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now pause right there. Because the one who's seated on the throne says, I am making all things new. This picture of eternity that John sees that is sometime in the distant future is currently being worked out even right now. It is a thing that God is working out at this very moment. My act of preaching Revelation 21 by faith is one of the ways that God is making this thing established and a reality for the future. Because what's happening is as the word is preached, you're hearing the word of God and it is like seed getting on the inside of your soul and it's shaping the way that you see God and think about your relationship to him. And so what he's saying is, write this down because I am currently right now doing a thing among my people that will ultimately be fulfilled but you don't have to sit around and wait for. That's huge. Because many Christians that I have met are convinced that the work of a Christian is to sit around and wait. That the things that are coming will get better in the future and all we have to do is just buckle up and just try to enjoy the ride. That is the opposite of what the Bible is teaching us. The Bible is teaching us that Christ's work of forgiving you of your sins was enough. You don't have to forgive your own sins and there's no work that you need to do in order to satisfy the wrath of God against you or to change your status before him. All the work that needed to be done has already been accomplished. And so everything that we're doing as we move forward is a response to that work. Christ, you saved me from the pit. What is my response now that you have saved me? Well, I want other people to experience the same salvation. So now I'm gonna get up and I'm not just gonna sit around and wait for you to come back and fulfill this thing. I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna tell other people about this. What Christ is showing John is that in eternity, all the things that will be the reality are already begun in the working of the church today. This is why evangelism is so important. When we started the sermon today, we were reflecting on Psalm chapter one, and the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and I told everyone that when Israel read that, their immediate response is, man, well, praise God, I'm counted among the righteous. Good thing I'm not a wicked person. If you go back and you study the archeology span of the first century, there are uh, Pharisee prayers that have been discovered that read something to the tune of, Lord, they pray this every day, Lord, thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile or a dog or a woman. These are the guys who are supposed to be stewarding the word of God for the rest of the world. Certainly for the people, but also for the rest of the world. See, the promise that God gave Abraham was, I'm gonna make you a blessing to the nations. So from the 
From the very beginning, the whole point of all of this that we're doing is so that supremacy of Christ could be established and spread through the entire world, not locked in tiny gyms or pretty churches on certain corners, and if you wanna hear about it, you gotta go to that place on Sunday morning. That's not the purpose of what we're doing. Israel heard that message that, well, it's a good thing that we're counted among the righteous and a good thing I'm not like that wicked person, forgetting that they were once counted among those wicked people. And now the story is being retold in us and we've been given this message to steward and the message is go and tell the world about the supremacy of Jesus and how he's inviting all of the nations to come to surrender their own wickedness and their sin to repent and turn to Jesus. That's it, put your faith in him. But the temptation, and the day we're living in now is, <laughs> good thing I'm not counted among the wicked. Good thing I got my ticket and I know where I'm headed, but I don't really care too much about what those people on the internet are saying or what my neighbor is saying or the people that I work with. I just need to get through the day. I'm not gonna share the gospel. Do you know who talks like that? Pharisees. Pharisees live like that, Pharisees talk like that. And if you're not careful, you become a Pharisee. If your attitude is, man, I'm sure glad I'm counted among the righteous and I'm not a wicked person, you evil, wicked people. No, you're forgetting that you were once a wicked person and now you've been given a message to share to them. And so the beauty of the fact that Jesus is doing something right now it transitions into this invitation in, in verses six and seven. What is, the, what is the end goal of God establishing his kingdom right now that will un, one day be fulfilled in eternity? What is the whole purpose of that? The purpose of that is even right now, everybody is welcome. Anybody, come and drink. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done in life or what organizations you've been a part of. It doesn't matter. All you have to do is come and drink. Just come drink and there's enough for everybody. And anybody who comes and drinks, this will be your heritage. But warning, because those who refuse to come and drink, those who reject the supremacy of Jesus, those who wanna go it on their own and do not trust in the work of Christ as being enough in fulfilling the satisfying of you standing before a holy God and saying, now I'm righteous, why are you righteous? Well, because I did this, this, and that. No, no, that's not why you're righteous. You're righteous because of what he did. If you can't put your faith in him, then you are counted among those who are cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual, and around. Well, that, do, uh, that doesn't seem fair that the liars and the murderers are all in the same place. Well, it's a good thing we're not going off of your sense of justice. Because if we were, then we'd have an eternal kingdom where liars were in, but murderers weren't, were out. But what we're seeing here is God establishing a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more of this. There is no more lying or deception. So that every conversation you have with somebody, when you shake their hand in the new house, how you doing? Man, I'm doing really good. And you don't have to wonder, are they putting on a face? Are they hiding something? Is their marriage broken? Are their kids lost? Did they lose their, is, there, is really everything okay? That's gone. What's it like to live like that? I don't know, but that's where we're headed. And if you want part of it, all you gotta do is come and drink. But there's a warning too. If you don't, there's also a place for you, but it's not eternity with God. 
So this chapter summarizes the entire book beautifully. Revelation, what's it about? It's about an invitation and a warning. That's it, that's the whole book. Sorry, I I didn't need to do this many weeks of study. I could have just told you that the first week. What's Revelation about? Oh, it's an invitation and it's a warning. An invitation to come and partake of some of the most generous and transforming power this world has ever seen. But if you don't want it, be careful. Because there will be judgment headed your way if you don't want the greatest generosity that's ever been shown mankind. And these two elements are what helped the early church persevere, and I'm convinced that these are the two elements that we need today. See, it's funny, because you look at the early church, and you're like, man, the conditions surrounding the early church, they were really unique, and, and, and evangelism was really unique, and like, I don't know how much of what was back then can apply to today, and, and well, they didn't have the internet, and so things are different, and the way that you approach people might be different. Like, I'm not here to argue all that, but I am here to argue this. The message hasn't changed. It's still the same message. Now how you talk about it may be a little bit different, but it's still the same message, and the message is this. There's an invitation to come and drink and partake of some of the most transformative generosity you've ever experienced in your entire life, and all you gotta do is say yes. But know this, if you say no, there is somewhere that you're headed. Now let's go to verse nine. It says then, came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, this is interesting because the angel who had a part in pouring wrath out on the earth is now saying to John, I wanna show you the bride. I wanna show you God's people. I wanna show you who's gonna marry the lamb. And he carried me up away in the spirit to a great high mountain. So he has a different perspective now, so he can see clearly. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from heaven. Excuse me, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. crystal. Now, pause there. Because when John goes up and sees the city from a new perspective, what does he see? Oh, it's not a city. It's people. The new Jerusalem isn't a place. It's a people. The new Jerusalem is God's People, the bride of Christ, adorned for marriage. Who is this city coming down out of the sky? It's God's people. Mm. That's fascinating, the way that John is using symbolism and imagery that we're familiar with to tell this story. So the question is, why is God's people pictured as a city? Well, God's people is pictured as a city because of what we're told in verses three and four. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God's people are pictured as a new Jerusalem because God is living among his people. On planet Earth, in the Old Testament, where do you go to get close to God? 
Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the footstool of God was. You want to get close to Yahweh here on earth, you've got to go to Jerusalem because that's where he dwells. But what happens when he no longer dwells in a building? What happens when he dwells among his people? Then you're talking about eternity. He comes, this, this idea of God dwelling among his people comes from this Old Testament concept of tabernacle. See, tabernacle in the Old Testament was a word that meant tent, but it also was a word that meant to dwell among. And so here's the story, and this is, this is really important. I'm gonna, I'll talk about this in a moment, about why story is important. But you've got, in Genesis, Eden. And then within Eden, you've got this garden, the garden of Eden. And in the garden is where mankind walks and fellowships with God. God is with, literally with his people. He's walking with his people. And what does mankind do? They ruin it. So what does God want after the whole thing gets ruined? He wants that fellowship back. I want to be among my creation. I want to be with them. How do I get them back? What's the plan that's going to be established in order to get this back? Well, I'm going to call Abraham. And out of his descendants, I'm going to give them a pattern for a home for me to live on earth among my people. It's called a tabernacle. And the people of Israel built this. And it was a mobile home for God everywhere they went. The tabernacle was there. Sorry, mobile home. <laughs> but everywhere, everywhere Israel went, God was among his people. And then they come into the promised land and God's like, okay, it's time for me. Uh, I, I want to be among my people. And David says, well, I'm going to build you a house. God's like, I never asked for a house, but I understand, what you're, I, I understand your heart. I know what you want, but because of the kind of man you are, you can't build it. Your son's going to build it. So Solomon builds a temple, and the temple was modeled off of the tabernacle. It's just this mobile home built into a permanent, massive structure that was one of the most beautiful pieces of uh, architecture on planet Earth. But you still, if you wanted to go close to God, you had to get to Jerusalem. You had to get to close to this building. So then you've got this, tab this tabernacle that molds into this temple. But after the temple, what happens? What happens next? Israel commits idolatry. And they go away into Babylon and God crushes the temple. And what are we told in Ezekiel about how the people are supposed to function while they're in exile? God says, I will be a tabernacle to you while you're in exile. So now the presence of God is not at one location in Jerusalem. Now it's among the whole people. Do you see the story? Do you see where this is headed? This is why it's so important to understand the whole story. Because we're not just looking at, well, oh, this temple coming down and like, okay, Jerusalem, the people, I don't really understand the symbolism. Well, you're, you don't understand the symbolism because you don't understand the value in the heart of God of this city, Jerusalem, and what it meant. So they eventually get back to Jerusalem, but it just wasn't what it was because the people's hearts are still in exile. 
Daniel's trying to read prophecies from Jeremiah. How long is this exile gonna last, 70 years? Like, no, it's gonna last over 400 years, which puts us into the time of Jesus, which means that even though Israel returned back to Jerusalem and rebuilt a temple, they were still functioning as people in exile until Jesus showed up and looks at the temple and says, hey, this thing you built, I'm gonna tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And then Pentecost happens. What happens on Pentecost? Pentecost is the moment where God's presence fills his people and all of a sudden, one second, God's presence is over in this temple and now God's presence is in all of us and we are functioning as a temple. You and I are now temple. But the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of that isn't until this event where John sees the vision coming down. And how does he describe it? What is the best way to see? I see God's people coming down out of heaven and making a place here on earth and God is with them. How do, what is the best way to describe it? Well, I'm gonna use Old Testament database imagery to help you understand this. And it's most like Jerusalem. You guys remember Jerusalem in the old days? Remember how good it was? Remember the Psalms of Ascent? Oh man, how good it would be to go back to Jerusalem. See, this picture is supposed to excite us and shape our Bible reading. We did a message series on the Psalms of Ascent a couple months ago. Let me just pull some from Psalm 122, uh, three and six and seven. It says, Jerusalem, oh man, you're built like a city that is bound firmly together. See, when the Hebrew looks at Jerusalem, they're like, man, this city is so much more than a city. This city, the walls communicate the security of God. On the inside of it is a temple, and this city communicates God's presence among his people, because where do the people live? They live in Jerusalem. And so for the Hebrew, he's reading the Psalms of Ascent, he's like, man, Jerusalem means a lot to me, but for us, we've never been to Jerusalem. We read this, they're like, well, Jerusalem doesn't really mean much for me. But John is writing to a Jewish crowd and he's a Jew and he says, what is it gonna be like? Well, <laughs> it's, it's gonna be like Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven. Verses six and seven, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem that they may be secure. Those who love you, peace within your walls, security within your towers. John is shown a picture of a city because God knows that to communicate the value of what he wants to do to his people, the best thing he can use is symbolism and imagery that they're familiar with, which catches us Westerners off guard. Because when we're reading this, they're like, okay. So, we re- we're, so what we're waiting for is a literal city that's gonna come down out of heaven like a spaceship and land right where probably Jerusalem is now and that's where we're gonna live. And God's like, no, it's not, not really what I'm getting at here. Because here's the thing. Since about the second or the third century, one of the primary interpretive tools that we use for the Bible is language. What does the Hebrew say? What does the Greek say? How does this verb connect with this noun? And that is a legitimate way to interpret the word of God, but it's not the only way to interpret the word of God. There's another way to interpret the word of God, and that is to understand the story. See, I don't know if you've been told this or you just picked it up along the way, but a lot of believers walk around with this idea that like there's two books, all right? And ours starts here in Matthew. And everything before, you read it if you want to, It's not really that important. 
Can you have zero understanding of the Old Testament and still come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and be radically transformed? Absolutely, but you're missing a lot. Because what we're looking at here with this book is an entire story. We're looking at the greatest story that's ever been told, and this story contains narrative and plot and characters and settings and structure and poetry and parallelism and expansion and foreshadowing and symbolism, and it's all in there just for the taking. And so when we get to Revelation at the end of the book and John says, what I see in eternity is a city coming down out of the clouds, we can either say, well, okay, it's a city coming out of the clouds, or we can go back to the, to the, the, the root of the story and understand how God is telling the story of Jerusalem and what Jerusalem means for him. See, Jerusalem was the place where David wanted to build a house for him. Jerusalem is the place where God's people celebrated and worshiped him. There was a time where Jerusalem meant something and it wasn't a burning rubble after the Babylonians came in. And what God is showing John is what I'm gonna do in eternity is most like Jerusalem. And that's why he says, I want you to think about what I'm gonna do in terms of New Jerusalem. See, what we're seeing here is God trying to help us understand eternity by giving us symbols we should be familiar with and then telling us, okay, you got that? Now multiply it times a thousand and that's what it'll be like. But if you don't understand the symbol or if you replace the symbol with some symbol of your own, when you do the calculation, you'll get some false or inaccurate result. So what, is, what do we have to do? We gotta know the Bible. You gotta let the Bible interpret the Bible. What does Jerusalem mean in the Bible? Man, read Psalms. Read First and Second Samuel, and then you'll start understanding what this vision really meant in the heart of a Jew who just watched 20 years earlier his city burn to the ground because the Romans destroyed the temple, and now he's having to live on his own. Because this is written around 90 AD and 70 AD, Rome sacked Jerusalem. There wasn't a standing Jerusalem or a temple when this was written. And so for John to write to the early church in the first century, guys, another Jerusalem's coming, but guess what? It won't be a city, it'll be us. We will be the new Jerusalem. That's good news to a church who doesn't know if they're gonna make it tomorrow. Let's go to verse 12. John starts describing the city that he sees. He says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were, were inscribed. So around this massive structure, John sees 12 gates and 12 tribes' names were over the gates. And it had a great high wall, oh, verse 13, on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and on the wall of the city it had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. So you got 12 gates, and over them are the tribes of Israel, and you got 12 foundations, and on them are the apostles' names. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates. This is a total callback to Ezekiel. The city lies four square, so it's a cube. Its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod. 12,000 stadia. Its length 
and its width and its height are equal. This is a cube, but you may ask yourself, how much is 12,000 stadia? That's about, depending on who you ask, 1,380 miles. Some say as high as maybe 1,500 miles. So listen, we're looking at a cube that's coming down out of heaven that covers right, aware, right around where we are in the United States all the way up to New York and from the East Coast all the way to about Colorado. That's how big this thing is. And it's a cube. It goes 1,380 miles in the sky and the walls Verse 17, he also measured his wall, 144 cubits. The walls are 200 feet thick by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire. The third was agate, emerald. The fifth was onyx. Carnelian, the seventh was chrysolite, the eighth was beryl, the ninth was topaz, the tenth was chrysoprase, the eleventh was jacinth, the twelfth was amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. How is John describing the city that he sees? He says it's got 12 gates and 12 foundations. Well, the 12 gates are labeled with the 12 tribes. So in order to get into the city, follow me, symbolically, in order to get in through the city, you gotta pass through the tribes. The first work that God did through the descendants of Abraham. To even get in this thing, you got to partake of what was done before you ever showed up. And the foundation of this thing rests on the apostles. The foundation being the teaching, the word of God that we have, everything that we can stand firm on, it came from the apostles and their teaching. And the city's foundations contain many rare and beautiful jewels. There's gold, clear glass, 12 stones. The 12 stones correspond almost to the priestly garments found in Exodus 28. Now I say almost because some of the translations between a Hebrew word and a Greek word of a specific stone, they vary a little bit, but if you go to Exodus 28, you'll see roughly the same stones in the city or the same stones on the breastplate of the high priest. You see all the symbolism here? So the question we have is, what is this communicating to us? What is this picture showing us? Is this a real city that's coming down out of heaven and it's gonna plant itself right around where Jerusalem is now and it's 1,400 square miles and it go, or, uh, wide and tall and the, it goes 1,400 miles in the, in the sky or is this communicating something else to us? Well, some people would read this and see it as a literal city, but I see it as a symbol of the scale and brilliance of God's people. We're told that the city is the bride and the bride is the people. So what do the people look like? They, they look brilliant. They're shining bright. And everything is squared and ordered and perfect and everything is as it should be. There's diversity in the city, there's brilliance and beauty in the city, and there's structure in the city because it's all God's design. That's what we're seeing in this new Jerusalem. But there's one thing missing in this old city, this new city. 
There's a structure that was in the old Jerusalem that's not in the new Jerusalem. Let's go to verse 22. It says, I saw no temple in the city. That's, that, to us, it's not shocking, but to John's audience, that would be shocking. A new Jerusalem with no temple? He saw no temple in the city. Why did he see no temple in the city? Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God is the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut again, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, because they're gonna be somewhere else. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when we come to the conclusion of 21, we find that this brand new beautiful city has no temple. And the reason why there's no temple is because God is the temple. See, you don't need symbols and systems when you finally have the real thing. Think about this, if you're buying a new house, one of the first things you do is try to pick the neighborhood and maybe you get on, online, you get on Zillow and you type in the address and you find a house that you're looking for and you like it, it's good, it's a nice house. And you start clicking through the photos and maybe it's got one of those cool 3D things so you feel like you're walking through it and you just can't stop imagining like where your furniture would be and where the kids' room would be and where the man cave is gonna be and where, well, oh man, the kitchen is gonna, it's gonna be, you can't stop. And then you buy the house and you move in. How much time do you spend online looking at those pictures in Zillow once you bought the house? None, because once you have the real thing, symbols aren't needed anymore. The symbol of tabernacle and temple has always been pointing to the same thing, Jesus. And once he's here, we don't need any more symbols, and that's why there's no temple. God is all we need in eternity, and in eternity he is with us. This picture is the whole earth as Eden and God is fully realizing his accomplished plan that Jesus is above all other things. So here's how I wanna to close today. As we enter into the Advent season, I want you to I want to invite you to meditate on this chapter. This is one of those chapters where it's not like, okay, well, it says to, to you know, be mindful of these things in your life, and now it's time to go reflect, oh, am I guilty of these things, or do I need to walk in some repentance or something? This is one of those chapters where the invitation is clear. Just sit down, turn off your phone, close your eyes, and consider what is promised you in eternity. I want you to read this chapter this week, and I want you to consider the beauty of the new Jerusalem. I want you to reflect on the scale and the brilliance of God's coming kingdom in 21 verses 9 through 21. I want you to explore the symbols and the themes that John is giving us to help understand the magnitude of this. And I want you to think about the contrasts that we've been given in the book so far. Okay, we're given this picture of a new Jerusalem, but it's not the only city in this book that we had. We had another city given to us, and its name was Babylon. So I, I've got a clear picture of Babylon, and now I've got a clear picture of the New Jerusalem. I had a clear picture of the harlot of the nations, and I've got a clear picture of the bride of Christ. The question is, what team am I on? Who am I playing for? Who am I counted amongst? Does my life 
and my family and my mind and my heart and my speech look as beautiful as that city? Am I radiating the glory of God that's going to come on the earth? Or am I falling short and does my life look like a completely different city? Because if you stop to consider and think about the contrasts and the imagery and the symbolism that's given us in Revelation 21, it should erupt in worship. When you sit and consider this as a thing that's true and should be true now, it should spur us to worship. Because I think if you take the time to understand the depth of what God is up to right now, you'll understand that you haven't even started scratching the surface of how brilliant he wants to work his kingdom out through you now. See, we're so fixated on things that don't matter when we're confronted with things that do matter. We don't, our, our attention or our affections aren't captured by them anymore. Because if you eat a steady diet of Skittles, you have no appetite for a real dinner. And frankly, the dragon has been giving us a steady diet of Skittles. Don't hear me, I'm not against Skittles, I like them. But the point is that if all you eat is unhealthy sugar in the form of candy that makes you feel good in the moment, makes you feel terrible the next moment, you will never grow and develop and you'll have no appetite for this kind of stuff that's presented to us. So my message for you today is this week, read this chapter again and consider the fact that you will be counted among the new Jerusalem. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.